PM Elbow and the Gang of Four, Liberal Leader Dutton, Murdoch Media Fails, and the good news is about democracy sausages. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me from the Harbour City and home of newly elected Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, Guardian and New York Times columnist, Van Batham. Your intro gets longer every week, Van. It's because your love for me grows deeper every week, Benjamin. I think we both know that. This is absolutely true, absolutely true. Van, what a huge week it has been since we last spoke to people. Of course, we did do a weekend wrap together this week, which was fantastic. And hugely popular. Thank you for everybody who tuned in on post-election Sunday to listen to the weekend wrap because we became we hit number th- Four in the politics charts, and we were number 34 in the news charts. We love being in the news charts. Yes, it was a great, uh, great show of support from everybody, and hopefully, you've stuck with us today. When we were talking about what we were going to talk about today, Van, uh, we there was so much that has happened, and yet it became difficult to kind of condense into how we would structure today's conversation. But I think the key thing here is we currently have a government of five people, don't we? We we do. It is pretty hilarious. Anthony Albanese and the Gang of Four. To be fair, this isn't that unusual in Australian politics. Um, obviously, uh, the, the Prime Minister, whoever it was going to be, was committed to attending the Quad meeting in Japan. Another brilliant piece of organisational snafuery from the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was committing Australia to attend this quad meeting in Japan with India and the United States, uh, in, you know, in like, yeah, sorry, in Japan, but with India and the United States 10 seconds and after. <laughs> and, and Japan, yes, of course, and Japan. Um, sorry, five minutes after an election. Like, can you, the arrogance, oh, well, you know, we're going to this quad meeting, you know, that I'm preparing for. And it was pretty funny to watch the footage. Biden was like, it's literally amazing that you're here to Albanese going, you've literally just come off the campaign trail. We all know what that's like. If you fall asleep, no one's going to judge you. But this, I mean, it's just a typical like, you know, Liberal Party arrogance. Oh, yes, well, yes, well, nothing's going to change. We'll be the government again, the promise of Australia, miracles from God and all that, as it turns out, not so. And, of course, in order for the country to function, Albo has had to sort of anoint a ministry on the run. And it's it's Katie Gallagher, it's Richard Miles, it's Penny Wong. Uh, Penny Wong is obviously in Japan with Albo at the quad meeting. Who's the, who's the fifth, Ben? Well, that's that's the five. So Elbow, Miles, Chalmers, Wong, and Gallagher. And Chalmers. No, I had forgotten Chalmers. Oh, the treasurer. So that's, yeah. So this happened in the 1970s when Whitlam became prime minister, that they had a period that was called the duumvirate, where there were two of them who had like 30 ministries each. And it's so everything can get started. But, of course, the appointment of the ministers will be happening next week and we will find out who the new cabinet of this country is going to be next and- Wednesday by the time Ooh. we by the time we record next week's episode we may well know the full gamut of the uh, of the labor ministry 
And it's going to be interesting because obviously there have been some changes uh, on the basis of the election. Christina Keneally, former uh, immigration spokesperson. Home very, Affairs as well. Home Affairs, very senior party figure, did not win the seat of Fowler. Terry Butler, who was uh, Shadow Minister for the Environment, another very crucial person in the lineup that Labor were mm. bringing to the front bench, she lost her seat to the Greens in um, – in the seat of Griffith, and I am going to say, how extraordinary if you care about the environment to deny yourself the opportunity of having the Minister for the Environment actually live in your electorate and you be able to influence personally, but okay. Um, and obviously the death of Kimberly Kitching a couple of months ago, Kimberly Kitching, of course, rising star of uh, the Labor Party front bench, I mean, these leave holes and, of course, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see who gets what and where uh, policy is going to be concentrated and who is going to influence what where. I think it should be really interesting. But, I mean, as has been pointed out by Peter Van Onselen, uh, who has been elected in um, in 2022 is the most educated uh, Labor front bench and, or any yeah. front bench ever. There are an extraordinary number of PhDs on that bench. My good friend Andrew Lee, um, our good friend Karina Garland, wonderful Sharon Clayton, um, comrade Jess Walsh, uh, Jim Chalmers has a PhD, Daniel Molino has a PhD. Like there are some very, very educated people with very sophisticated policy understandings who will be um, part of the, the new Labor government. It's really exciting. And also, Van, not just in terms of- Sorry, Dr. Anne Ali, there's another one. I'm sure I will think of more as the program goes on. And if you are a Labor member of caucus who has a PhD, who we have not read out, please do write to Van directly. Do not send your message care of the show. Uh, but but it's not just uh, in terms of educational uh, attainment that this will be uh, a first. It's also the most experienced front bench with more people in the shadow cabinet, well, soon to be cabinet, already having served in ministries, in government, than any other Commonwealth government in history. I mean, this is an incredible uh, incredibly experienced, incredibly educated, incredibly capable group of people uh, who who will be taking the reins this time next week. Not, not to, to mention, say- not to mention the tradition of the Labor Party, which is to recruit for its ranks from the trade union movement, mean that you have people who are in the Labor caucus, the governing caucus of this country, who have had lives devoted to the cause of working people. So obviously um, beautiful Jed Carney, who's from the seat of Cooper, is a former ACTU president. Um, Mark Butler was a national secretary. Uh, Jess Walsh was a senior union official in um in Victoria, Tony Sheldon, of course, was General Secretary of the Transport Workers Union. Um, Karina Garland was a former Assistant Secretary of Victorian Trades Hall. Like there are people, and there's more and more and more and more. Linda but White, of Linda course. Linda White, of course, the from the ASU, who's the newly elected Senator from Victoria. Glenn Stowe from the TWU. Like these are people, Richard, and Richard Miles, of course, was a yeah. former ACTU Assistant, um, Secretary. Assistant Secretary. And these are people who have demonstrated throughout their working lives 
a commitment to making the lives of workers better. And that is more than a little bit exciting. Like it's one thing to hold those politics and it's another thing to work for a union, be a member of a union, be activists around union issues. But to take those values into government is incredibly exciting. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I have to admit, Van, you know, the the members of uh, the caucus that I've been fortunate enough to interact with since uh, election day uh, are all very excited about the prospect of, of the Labor platform, of what Labor campaigned on. Uh, of course, there was some, some big... Um, you know, despite all the media spin about Labor being a small target, there's actually quite a lot of really positive reforms, particularly around workplace relations, the rights of workers. Uh, and of course, Albo has said that an employment summit with employers, with unions, uh, will take place as soon as possible. There's speculation that will happen before September which would mean that any uh, outcomes of that would be able to be fed into Chalmers's October budget uh, process that he's uh, said that Labor will have. I mean, there's lots of really positive things moving here. I mean, I want to go through what some of the some of the big issues are because, of course, you've talked about the quad. Uh, my understanding is that Albo and Wong are back uh, today. Uh, being Wednesday, the 25th of May, and that uh, Penny Wong will be going, I believe, to Fiji to engage with our partners in the Pacific pretty much straight away. So that focus on the Pacific, rebuilding those relationships, re-establishing Australia's role as a key partner with, with the nations of the Pacific is clearly a priority for the Albanese government. Uh but also, there's, you know, one of the symbolic things that I noticed drove some of the conservative commentators a little bit nuts was that in Albo's first press conference as Prime Minister, he changed the flags in the Blue Room. And the Blue Room, for those who aren't aware, is a press conference room, effectively, uh, in, in Canberra that the government uses. Uh, and gone is the... 27 Australian flags that Tony Abbott had. I think it got down to two or three Australian flags under Morrison. But then they've changed the flags and now there's an Australian flag, an Aboriginal flag, and a Torres Strait Islander flag. Wow. You mean we're actually going to acknowledge the the political history of this continent? Are we doing that now? Wow. I think- I think it's great. Controversial. It's absolutely fantastic. Like it brings the federal parliament uh, up to speed with what every council building in the country. <laughs> yes, I think even some of the more conservative rural councils that I'm aware of, uh, who, for example, wouldn't fly a rainbow flag on Ida Hobbit Day or uh, or any kind of multicultural flags on any kind of uh, recognition days, even they fly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags. So to see some of the conservatives not only lose their minds about this change, which is, yes, a powerful symbolic change, but it is a symbolic change. Uh, it has no uh, it has no material impact on their lives whatsoever, although it may have a, a, a powerful uh, symbolic impact on, on many other people's lives. To watch conservatives lose their mind about it, but also to get it wrong, to say that, the placement of the flags, 
was incorrect when there are actually, believe it or not, there are really clear protocols about how you fly flags and the Australian flag should always be to the left when there's two or more flags and that's where it was. And to watch conservatives online like John Roscombe go, the flag should be in the middle. Why isn't the Australian flag in the middle? It's like, dude, if you're going to conservative, learn how to conservative, please. Yeah, they're not very good at being conservatives, Australian conservatives, but we are where we are. And of course, I think we should acknowledge as well that there is a record number of Indigenous MPs who have just been elected to the parliament, which is really exciting. Obviously, there's been uh, Jackie Lambie, who has Indigenous heritage, and Pat Dodson um, have remained in the parliament. They're existing senators. They weren't up for election. But Linda Burney, of course, has been re-elected. Marion Scrimgore, who's um, from the Northern Territory, will be represented representing the symbolically powerful seat of Lingiari, which has, of course, the largest First Nations population of any seat in no. Australia. Um, Gordon Reid has been elected as the member for Robertson in New South Wales, which is amazing. Um, Malandiri McCarthy, who's the Labor Senator for the Northern Territory, has been re-elected and Yana Stewart has been re-elected has been elected uh, for Labor in Victoria. She was an appointment to replace Kimberly Kitching last year and she's been successfully re-elected. But it's not just the Labor side. Uh, Lydia Thorpe and Dorinda Cox uh, will be representing the Greens in the Senate and Jacinta Price, uh, the country Liberal Senator for the Northern Territory. I'm not particularly thrilled about Jacinta Price given the kind of politics that she represents, but as a person who believes in the right of all people to be both good and awful, congratulations, Jacinta, on your election. Well, it does It does show that uh, awfulness can uh, occur in any community. Uh, but also interesting just to note, it's just occurred to me, the Northern Territory has – two lower house MPs and two senators, and three out of the four uh, are Indigenous Australians. That's a pretty remarkable uh, situation. That is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that either. But (coughs) I do, excuse me. It is kind of, it is absolutely extraordinary. And this is why symbols matter. Like associating an Aboriginal flag with the highest office in the land makes it very clear that, Aboriginal Australians, Torres Strait Islander Australians have the right and, you know, and have the the opportunity to represent their communities and the broader community of Australia at the highest level. That's a really important thing to communicate. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And look, one of the key things, of course, that uh, Prime Minister Albanese, that's, that's going to take some getting used to, Prime Minister Albanese uh, has said as a priority is, of course, the voice to parliament. It was the first thing he said on election night. (coughs) Excuse me, everyone. The first thing he said that he would do on election night was the voice to parliament and uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, We would hope that that would end up getting bipartisan support, but, of course, Labor is on track to win enough seats in the lower house and the composition of the Senate, we're likely to have the most progressive Senate in broad terms uh, that we've had really since the Hawke era. Uh, so you would think that this is this is now going to happen. That you know, First Nations Australians are going to be recognised, and there will be um, progress on on these issues: and constitutional recognition, voice to parliament, a full embrace of the Uluru Statement from the Heart Band. 
Well, one would hope so. Um, I uh, I am, as you can imagine, not entirely uh, convinced that um, that the progressive reputation of the new Senate will be borne out in reality. I'm a little older than you and I'm still pretty scarred by decisions that were made by the Greens to stop action on climate change and to stop improvement in refugee policy uh, during the last period of Labor government. So we'll wait and see. And there have been sounds out of the Green caucus um, about uh, voting against the statement from the heart. I hope that saner and more empathetic minds will prevail. But who knows? We are in a new... We're in a so, new reality. New reality. And look, well, some of the some of the other issues that are obviously going to be crucial, and you know, we have to consider the fact that yes, Labor is on track to get beyond seventy six seats, possibly as many as eighty. Uh, it seems likely to be between sort of seventy six and seventy eight. Um, but these big issues, this employment summit in September, Labor's talked about. Uh, putting gender equity and secure employment as aims of a new Fair Work Act, uh, regulation of the gig economy, limits on the use of temporary contracting, bans on using labour hire on lower rates than directly contracted employees. I mean, in, in industries like mining, that's a huge, huge thing. Uh, reducing the use of contractors and outsourced labour in the public sector. Uh reinvigorating bargaining. I imagine the summit will be uh, the way in which we, we discover what reinvigorate bargaining really means uh, and pay rises, of course, that keep up with the cost of living. Some people are expecting that uh, the new Labor government will make a submission to the Fair Work Commission possibly next week uh, to on the minimum wage case. We know Labor's talked about and did make a submission supporting increases in the aged care sector uh, and that the reason why there's a gang of five as opposed to a gang of four or even a gang of two like in the 70s is that some of these things need to be done before a whole ministry can be sworn in. I mean, that's a that's a pretty comprehensive set of industrial uh, reforms and workplace rights that would be added uh, for, for millions of Australians, Van. Yeah, it is. And look, the reform agenda, everybody knows it's overdue. Um, There is an absolute clamouring from the electorate for change. And I've got to say, like, I I remember a strange sort of feeling in the wake of the 2007 election, which was that the the country wanted to move on from Howard, but didn't necessarily want it, want to embrace change like there was very much a there was a cautiousness in the electorate uh, back in 2007 in the election of Kevin Rudd that you know we would have we'd have new people who we liked a bit more but you know not necessarily the big powerful reform agenda and i think that was very difficult for labor to manage then i think the election of all the teals of people who from traditional Liberal Party electorates, the kind of electorates we used to call Blue Ribbon, who have the absolute mandate from their communities, have been very explicit about running on immediate climate action and 
bold, um, you know, uh, bold anti-corruption action, which is one of my big issues, as you can imagine, um, and bold action around justice for women, bold action around uh, fairness and social justice for First Nations communities, humane policy of refugees, these kind of things. Like there is a mandate from the electorate and because it's a cross-party electorate for change and there are specific issues that are common to the policy platform of the Labor Party and to the independents who now have this significant grouping in the lower house that actually communicates to everybody that the time is ripe for for change. And I think that's what's different about this election and that's what's really exciting. And I've got to say of all the policy platforms, I mean, they're all important. They're all equally important. Everybody everybody deserves justice. I think the bedrock of getting it right and making sure that, you know, we have the climate action we deserve and we have the justice for women we deserve and we have the constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians we deserve is that we've got to get the federal ICAC down. And one of the things that was really exciting during the election campaign was Albanese and Labor going, yep, we'll have it legislated by the end of the year. Like that is tr- that is transformational and it's such important policy because it means that there is constant oversight and scrutiny. So we're not just, for example, over the past nine years of Liberal government, the Liberals have talked about climate action and said, oh, yes, but we're doing all of these climate things. We're giving all this money to people to not pollute. And, of course, you can see the you know the absolute pork barreling that went on there was literally a pay pay you not to pollute so much kind of policy that was yeah. targeted towards corporations which is absolutely disgusting and of course you didn't know work. Didn't, didn't work didn't deliver any environmental gains did not get the blot off our copybook of being one of the world's like worst per capita polluters and we are which is disgusting like with these social poli- the the social policy framework needs to change to be based around fairness instead of just like giving out guns to every friend Bridget McKenzie's ever had. And I I think, Van, it was described uh, as being an evolutionary democratic reform that, that, you know, and we've talked about it before, right? Australia and Argentina, very similar countries in terms of of history, in terms of natural resources, often in terms of climate as well. And yet, Argentina has been racked by economic insecurity, collapse, uh, you know, dictatorship, the whole Yultas, thing. yeah. And, and, and that fundamentally the, the, the factor that has been different between the two is that Australia had a very robust um, rule of law and a very strong uh, position against corruption, whereas the Argentinian body politic didn't have that, uh, was riddled with corruption. And in fact, seeing Australia fall down the rankings, the global rankings on uh, on anti-corruption actions, on uh, on transparency, on rule of law, meant that you know we start to put our economic and social issues uh, at risk. So. Couldn't agree more. I mean, an anti-corruption commission that is retrospective, that is fully independent, that holds public hearings. You know, it, you know where I come from on this. You know, I I, I have gone through a, a royal commission that was politically motivated. Uh, you know, wasn't called before it myself, thankfully, but you know, worked with people who worked uh, involved. You know, called before it. 
uh, a politically motivated attack on an institution of civil society that didn't find uh, corruption because there wasn't corruption to be found. Uh, At the same time, the government was behaving, as you say, handing out gifts and favours, you know, making appointments that had questionable merit, uh, handing out contracts to companies that had no staff. So, yeah, there's without tenders, staff, companies without staff, without any capital of their own, being given tender, being given contracts without tender. Yeah, that that's not okay. That's not a thing that can no. continue. And I, and I, think- I think everybody's really excited about a federal ICAC as well because it, it's one of those gestures towards levelling a playing field that in this country it shouldn't be about who you know or the kind of networks that you can leverage, you know, the individual influence you can exercise. It should be about what is the best company or service or organisation or department for the job? What is the best? What is in the best national interest? And having a mechanism that that constantly scrutinises government, that constantly holds our systems of power to account and transparency before the people. And the idea that, I mean, this is the thing that, you know, Morrison used to go on about how, you know, it was all Labor's fault. There was no independent, like independent commission against corruption because Labor wouldn't support the legislation that the Liberals never actually brought to the parliament, which was for this sort of pseudo anti-corruption commission where a minister would have to be the one who referred the and it would have to go through cabinet. His plan yeah. was for it to go through every referral would go to the whole cabinet. Yeah, on yeah, not on, and wouldn't be retrospective, and also wouldn't be held in public. Would and be wouldn't kind be of- allowed to investigate politicians. And this is the thing: like <laughs> we have seen the success of ICAC in New South Wales. Yeah, like when I was growing up. The, the reputation of New South Wales, which you still harass me for even many, many years later. Crooks, or, crooks and convicts, the lot of you. Benjamin, um, I'm very proud to be from New South Wales. And oh. I, look, I'm so old. I came from Sydney when Sydney was fun. And the, um, you know, and that kind of culture had to be cleaned up here because it was disgraceful, like yeah. absolutely disgraceful. And it was corruption in all directions at all levels because corruption begets more corruption. People start making decisions and second-guessing decisions within a corrupt context. And then all of a sudden you are in, you know, like a, a corrupt society. And it's so important to delivering on the promise of Australian opportunity and Australian egalitarianism that we have mechanisms in place to stop that from yeah, happening. Absolutely. Look, I, I want to talk about some of the other key issues as well because you, you've touched on some of them. The respect at work recommendations. Uh, this was the this was the uh, work that was done around how to improve respect for women in the workplace across all workplaces, not just in Parliament, but how to ensure that women are properly respected at work, have the opportunities uh, that they deserve at work uh, and are safe at work. Uh, These recommendations were were basically paid lip service by the Morrison government. Labor has committed to implementing all of them, including making a positive uh, obligation on employers to ensure that sexual harassment does not occur in the workplace. Now, what does that mean? Because most people say, well, I thought sexual harassment was banned in the workplace. Well, many workplaces have policies that obviously ban it, and for many organisations, it's a dismissible offence. But what this does is it enshrines in law 
that the employer has a responsibility to ensure that people are not sexually harassed at work. Now, that seems quite logical and straightforward and hard to argue against. The Morrison government refused to do it. Uh, There's been some businesses, some business lobby groups, I should say, who've argued against it. Now, of course, it will become law. You would expect that the Teal Independents will push for this pretty strongly because it's a fairly... Uh, it's a it's a very gendered issue, sexual harassment in the workplace. It is yeah, primarily okay. women who are who are sexually harassed. There's no question about that. Oh, look, I've been sexually harassed at work. I was sec- relentlessly sexually harassed when I worked in hospitality. It was absolutely awful. And the worst part is you get used to it. That and that you know that kind of degradation, humiliation, harassment, feeling unsafe. That becomes part of your day at work, and that's outrageous. That is absolutely appalling. And people who do not have sensitivity to that, I, I dare you to last twenty four hours, you know, like in the capacity where you're you're exposed to it. Uh, I, no, actually, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I also got sexually harassed at work when I was a teaching assistant when I was working in England, which was one of the most like awful, embarrassing, violating experiences of my entire life. And I'm sure I've been sexually harassed in other capacities and just blocked it out because it is so awful, but particularly working in hospitality, like Mm. my experiences there. And, of course, all of this has been borne out by research that was done by the United Workers Union with Hospo Voice, which is the hospitality branch, um, where they did a massive survey. And the, the number of workers who are not only harassed but assaulted at work is absolutely disgraceful. And there's a responsibility on employers to do something about it, to police the rules, to ensure that their workers are safe. Like I tell a story a lot of times about a night I was working behind a bar and we had these guys come in who were venture capitalists who had all the money in the world and we were told by the boss before the boss walked out the door to just, you know, give these guys whatever they wanted. They were high rollers, whatever. And they got really drunk really quickly, drove, drank one of everyone in the bar to show off um, and they got they got really handsy with the staff and yeah. it was just absolutely disgusting and was not the only thing that went on. And finally, I, when one of my co-workers was, I found her crouched behind the bar bawling her eyes out and I was like, what happened? And they were like, they, she's told me they, that they had touched her. I was like, right, that's it. And I was just another bar worker, but I flicked the lights on and off and I just shut the pub down because I was like, I'm not. I'm not encountering this. This is not okay. Like we deserve to be safe. But that kind of thing, it's an employer's responsibility. You shouldn't have to pretend that a saw pipe has burst to get people out of a venue so you can look after the staff. And that had such a chilling effect on me. That's a long time ago now that that happened. And I remember every detail of that night. It was so chilling. And it's, it's, I mean, what you did obviously is solidarity in action and, and, Frankly, you know, unions have been campaigning around the Respect at Work report uh, since the the process was begun years ago. This this thing has been sitting on the table for years now. Of course, there are other key reforms, and and I'm just gonna I'm gonna focus a little bit on the ones that the union movement has campaigned on. Obviously, we've talked about the employment ones, the anti corruption ones, um, the Respect at Work. Uh, the aged care reforms, nurses in nursing homes, accountability for for government funding that goes into the aged care system, uh, better food, uh, also improving aged care worker pay, which again is a gender issue as as much as anything. 
uh, cheaper childcare and and the wages of childcare workers. These are all things that the union movement campaigned heavily on uh, leading up to and during the election, all things that are listed in the top priorities. There are other things as well around manufacturing and a whole range of things, but these are the sort of top first eight to ten things that the Albanese government has said it intends to do, you know, now is absolutely the time to join your union. You know, there is a Labor government that Anthony Albanese thanked the trade union movement. He thanked the workers of Australia in his acceptance speech. You know, not every uh, time you're in a union are you going to have to do those individual acts of solidarity like you had to do, Van, but it's so important. So important that we can all stand together. So I just encourage people as always, australianunions.org.au slash WOW, wow, that's for the week on Wednesday. You can join your union right now. You can join online and never been a better time. It's so important that we continue to hold government to account. And that's what we'll be doing here on the week on Wednesday. People should be under no misunderstanding about that. This is honest, transparent media. I am a member of the Labor Party. I am a trade unionist, uh, and I obviously prefer a Labor government to a Liberal government. But we want Labor to deliver on these things. These yeah, the- absolutely. I'm not a member of the Labor Party. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> absolutely. And let me tell you, if the Labor like I will give anybody merry hell. Like it's one thing to try and, you know, satiate the demands of conflicting stakeholders. And we know particularly when it comes to issues around climate action, there are really thorny policy issues to sort out and like intersectional problems require intersectional solutions. How do we transition fossil fuel communities into equal opportunity for income and economic opportunity um, in, in new industries? I mean, this is the thing, you know, it's very frustrating when people make demands, oh, well, we should just close all the coal mines. Yeah, look, I agree. I'd love to just, let's just close them. But what happens to those people? In some communities, coal is it. And what people don't seem to understand is that, you know, one job in a mine supports entire families, entire small business communities. If you take, if you shut the coal mine, that's all your your heavy laundry jobs gone. You know, that's that's money that's not being spent. That's cafes, that's restaurants, that's, you know, all kinds of different services. Local builders. And people are like, oh, yeah, but it's such a tiny, it's like such a tiny percentage of the workforce. It's like, yes, but it's a tiny percentage of the workforce that carries everybody else. Like, you know, you earn more in a mine than you do in hospitality. If you replace mining jobs with hospitality jobs, that's like 60% of the income that's suddenly going out of the local economy. These are difficult things to work out. I only have faith, only have faith in a Labor government to sort that out. I have no faith in minor parties to be part of that conversation, none. I have no faith in the Liberal Party to be part of that conversation. They had nine years of opportunity and they squandered every single day of it. But, you know, the idea that we'll be able to resolve these very complex problems immediately, well, I think that's idealistic. I think it's incorrect. And I think racing towards 
actions is not yes it's a climate emergency time is of the essence but we helped we help no one least of all ourselves if if we proceed with rapidly made bad decisions opposed to well made permanent decisions that can lead to a restructuring of economy and opportunity in a way that doesn't punish the climate and set everybody on fire i genuinely believe that the latter is possible absolutely and i think you know i always use the german example not because i think the timeframes need to be exactly the same, but because it provides it provides a conceptual anchor point to say it took Germany 30 years and tripartitism across all of politics, business, unions, and community to transition out of digging out and burning coal. And it has done that. And it did that where and and the communities that for hundreds of years, hundreds of years were reliant on the mining and export of coal are now not. And no one was made forcibly redundant. People were able to find new jobs, move into retirement, whatever the case might be in the individual community. Now, I'm not saying we need to take 30 years to do this. Times have changed, things move on, there are new opportunities and new options, and we have different set of circumstances in Australia than we do in, than they had in Germany. Uh, we have opportunities in renewable energy that Germany does not have because of our access to rare metals, to lithium, to all sorts of things. We have all sorts of opportunities here in Australia. Uh, offshore wind, we have massive coastlines, massive oceans that we can harness. So there's heaps of heaps of opportunity. And this is where the National Reconstruction Fund and Jobs and Skills Australia and some of these other um, government entities that Labor is proposing to set up will come into their own. They will they will be the basis upon which we're able to interact as a community across business, unions, workers, to have proper conversations, develop proper policy that benefits people instead of the old system where you had ministers doling out favours, doling out contracts, uh, and you know one of those one of those ministers van. Who who did this, and uh, you know our friend Tim Ayres, uh, senator for New South Wales, uh, highlighted just before the election campaign started that Peter Dutton and his department had handed out 1.6 billion dollars in a defence contract to a company that was the wrong company that didn't have any staff, didn't have any assets, uh, and when they investigated and found it was the wrong company, they didn't do anything about it. They just left the money there. And now, of course, Peter Dutton, the mashed potato from uh, from Dixon, is going to be coronated as the Liberal leader when when the what's left of the rump of the Liberal Party meets. He is running unopposed, Van. He will be the opposition leader. Peter well- He's nobody, not nobody wants to be captain of the ship that's made entirely out of dog turds. So you can sort of see why he's running unopposed. I mean, who on earth would want to be leader of the Liberal Party at the moment? Surely if you were committed to the flaming torch of liberalism at the moment, the place you'd probably most want to be in the world is wrapped up in a quilt at your mum's house so no one could see you cry. I mean, that's... Let's be realistic. So, I mean, I understand. I think Scott Morrison is right now, by the way. Yep. Yeah, I, I did watch Scott Morrison's bizarrely apocalyptic pre, um, 
farewell speech at the Horizon Church the other day. And for those of you who just want to be terrified out of your minds, he essentially quoted quoted from Habakkuk, which is a chapter of the Bible that doesn't come up that often. Um, and Habakkuk three seventeen, which talks about even if the fruit rots on the tree and and you know the the waters turn to and the fields are spoilt and the waters are poison and basically it's a prophecy of total environmental destruction. It's okay because if you love the Lord, you'll prevail. And I'm like, oh, so that's why you took absolutely no climate action in nine years. You have explained it. Thank you. In the language of the Old Testament, it is creepy stuff. Anyway, um, Dutton is obviously going to, to seize at the seize at the chalice. Um, it is bizarre that, that I mean, it that this sort of hard right conservatism, like the Liberal Party is not supposed to be a conservative party. It is, the dead giveaway is in the name, my friends, supposed to be a Liberal Party. It is supposed to be more like the Democrats in the United States, yeah. right, who are a liber, small L Liberal Party that's about freedom of expression and freedom of association, the flaming touch of liberalism, the whole thing, you know, and you're, you're right and obviously I don't get this, which is why I am not a Liberal, to, you know, start your own business and and conquer territory and whatever those people who are interested in money are interested in, whatever that is. So, like, that's what it's supposed to be about. Robert Menzies, the founder of the Liberal Party, was very explicit, and I think I'm going to write about it this week, you know, when he said that conservatives would vote liberal but liberals wouldn't necessarily vote conservative. You have all of these liberals in Kuyong, Menzies' own former seat, voting for Manuik Ryan and yeah. Goldstein. Like the, these are seats that have never been anything apart from liberal. Liberal values, small L liberal values are in those seats Absolutely, in those seats, they voted overwhelmingly for marriage equality. For ex- for example, yeah. you know, overwhelmingly they are behind free speech issues. They're behind a freedom of association, freedom to love, all of those things. Those seats represent like that is their ideological tradition. Yeah, they're the and- people who love a tax cut. And think unions have a place, but it's probably not at the cabinet table. Yeah. And, you know, they believe in the kind of liberalism, which is if I pay less tax, that means I'm free to do whatever I want. And it's like, if you pay less tax, that means that my family live in indentured servitude again. Um, so, I mean, this is the thing that those smaller liberal values have been affirmed by those communities. And what's the Liberal Party doing? Going, let's double down on this hard right conservative thing that alienated all of our voters. Let's get the most publicly recognisable hard right identity in the country, Peter Dutton, get him to represent us. And it's like, I was asked about this on ABC Radio yesterday. It was like, what do you think of Peter Dutton becoming leader of the Liberal Party? And I was just like, Labor will be in government for a billion years. Like, (laughs) what? Just what, what, you know, like what kind of decision-making process is that? Well, the electorate didn't think we were liberal enough, so we're going with this like crazy conservative, the kind of person who makes jokes about, you know, Pacific Islands drowning, like the kind of person who who has like, oh, my God. Oh, well, just interesting. Relentless, relentless, relentless anti-liberal statements made by Peter Dutton, who's always the first person wanting to be identified with this sort of hard-right conservative nitwittery, and yeah. that's the guy? Pick him! Well, Van, it's interesting, isn't it, because he's clearly he's clearly the leader because he's got the numbers. Queensland is the state 
uh, I think probably the only, uh, no, with the exception of Tasmania, uh, is the state where the Liberals, the LNP, because of the coalition set up there, have a majority of seats. Um, that is clearly where his power base is. Uh, nobody else in the country is able to pull together enough uh, enough votes in what is let's let's put this in context the worst electoral performance since the formation of the Liberal Party, not just in terms of losses to labor but overall losses because of as you say, those small L, those Menzian liberals abandoning the Liberal Party. Um, it is, and and their 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 performance, the outcome for the Liberal Party, is the worst in the states where Dutton is most hated. Places like WA, where Mark McGowan has said that he's not very bright, um, where Mark McGowan has said there's not much going on in his head, uh, that he's an appalling choice. Uh, in Victoria, where he tried to have people stopped and asked for ID papers in the streets of Melbourne when he was Home Affairs Minister. Uh, you know, these are states that have roundly rejected Peter Dutton time and time again in all of his guises and forms, to the point where the Murdoch media ran front news, front front page news saying he is not a monster. Uh, it didn't yeah, seem at the point anyway. where they have to put out a, a headline that says he is not a monster, my first thought is that dude's a monster. That dude's a monster. That dude's an absolute monster. I would not let my pet near that guy. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, my God, he's like the Babadook of Australian politics without the depth, without the depth. But, look, the, but I mean, I'm just trying to, can we just talk about what it means to be Victorian? Like, what it means to be Victorian. Like, Labor was only really expected to pick up Chisholm. Everybody thought the Labor vote in Victoria couldn't actually go any higher. It's pretty Labor there. I mean, you have an Andrews government that's supported by seats that Labor won in places like Hawthorne, which are old Tory territory. There's now a Labor MP from Higgins. Higgins? Higgins. Higgins? She represents Higgins. Labor. How is that even a thing? And the Liberal Party are going, well, we should get Dutton then. It's like, <laughs> is he even not allowed into Victoria? Don't you doesn't your passport get checked to make sure you're not Peter Dutton before you can go there? I mean, surely, I mean, get, correct me if I'm wrong, but surely the political play here is to go, wow, there are 10 independents in the lower house who, if we were to restructure our leadership, rebrand, have a Turnbull-like figure we could pick off over the course because it is it is yeah. really difficult to be an independent. If you're not interested in getting anything done, if you're there just to symbolically like hold yeah. a seat, you know, like it's easy to be an independent. If all you do is turn up and take the money, easy peasy. Like, But if you're an independent who's like, I'd like to see a policy agenda think, through, yeah. you have to be part of a major party because that's how you, you get representation on committees and in all the different fora that go on with Parliament. Yeah. Like the reason why we have mass parties is because our system encourages them so there can be a sharing of information in the structures like, of power. Let's, let's, can I just say, the Liberals are not interested in that, right? So I get where you're coming from. Surely you would think the Liberals would be reaching out the hand of friendship to these people. Hey, we're the original party of Menzies. 
you're all a bit Menzian, come and join us, right? But they're not interested in that. You know, you had at the same time as Simon Birmingham, um, former Liberal leader in the Senate, who knows what he'll be in the new opposition, um, saying we have to be more moderate, we have to be more uh, understanding that women need respect and all these things on climate and all these things that the electorate has said. You had Antic going out saying we have to purge the party of the moderates. Um, and, and like, let's be clear, Sharma has said Morrison was a drag on the vote. Andrew Bragg still wants to destroy superannuation. I mean, they're going to make Susan Lay deputy leader. This is a woman who had to resign from the ministry over, over not declaring investment properties on which she got a discount. Now, there's no question, apparently, that that was all above board. be interesting to see what a federal ICAC thinks about that. But the... They've not learned any lessons whatsoever, and frankly, it doesn't seem like they're going to. It seems like the only thing that will hold this ragtag bunch of people together is wanting to cut taxes further and opposing more secure jobs. I mean, there's a very good chance here, and we discussed this a bit on the weekend wrap, that we're looking at the nationalists in 1929, you know, party in power for a decade, and then basically dissolving over the course of the next 20 years. Oh, it is just – it's just too bonkers for words. I mean, Simon – because one of the things we know, we know that there was heaps of pushback within the Liberal caucus about the direction that things were going in. We know this. And they're all just – they're leaking like a boat shot with a javelin at the moment about what was going on and who hated who and the rest of it. I do – I recommend, again, that people read Julia Banks's book Power Play about – her experiences as exactly the kind. I mean, Julia Banks is what we would now call a teal. She has yeah. those values, and and they totally burnt her. They incinerated her. <laughs> not only that, not only did they do that to her ideologically and politically, but they tried to do it to her personally. Well, like, and it's, it's coming like out. She was the person who represented the exact kind of electorate it's- you need to form government. It's coming out that, uh, that Morrison basically did the same thing to Fiona Martin. That's coming out today, has been coming out today, that he essentially abandoned her because she crossed the floor on uh, federal ICAC. Um, and, of course, the Liberals lost the seat of Reid to, uh, to Labor and Sally Situ. Uh, you know, look, I, I couldn't be um, happier. Somebody spoke to, uh, I spoke to earlier today reminded me, of course, we were all delighted when Tony Abbott became opposition leader because we thought he was too conservative for the electorate and that he would fall apart. The question is, you know, will, will we have the same issues? Time will tell on that. I think, I think there are significant differences. I think Dutton has been a much higher profile figure in the last nine years than Abbott was uh, under Howard. Um, and he comes into it not have not replacing an opposition leader, but comes into it fresh from being defence minister. Uh, and frankly, there are already many, many, many memes about Peter Dutton that simply did not exist until Tony Abbott decided to start taking bites out of onions and making Prince Philip a knight. Um, so we'll wait and see. But of course, Van. The role of the media, and I've already mentioned the front page of uh, Peter, I am not a monster, Dutton. Uh, has Save come. the pets. Keep them away. But the role of the media in this election cycle has really come under scrutiny. We've talked about it on this uh, podcast before. 
you know, we were both, uh, certainly I was incredibly critical. Um, uh, and I know, you know, solidarity journalists, they do have a hard job. I understand that. But the ownership of the media, the direction and the management of the media uh, has clearly failed the Australian people at this election. All but one Murdoch paper told people to vote for Morrison, and that was the NT News. Um, and frankly, the NT News is probably one of the few Murdoch newspapers that's in a position of influence. The rest all called for a vote for Morrison, including the Geelong Advertiser, by the way, um, which saw a huge swing, huge swing to both sitting uh, uh, Labor MPs. The SMH and the Age and the Guardian all called for change. The Australian Financial Review, unsurprisingly, the boss's newspaper backed in Morrison. Even no though, way. The AFR, I'm so shocked. Even oh, though just a few out. days before you had uh, tech company bosses, new, new economy uh, employers saying Labor has the better policy, AFR went with Morrison. Uh, you know, are we seeing are we seeing the start of a slow bleed on Murdoch? You know, you and I did an election night coverage where fifty thousand people have seen that now. Uh, you know, there's been lots of commentary, uh, lots of people looking for alternative sources of media. The week on Wednesday itself is in some ways an alternative source of media. Um, can we can we say that Murdoch's control over the body politic of Australia is dead or is it just weakened? Oh, look, I think that I think it's definitely weakened. This is the first election where who Murdoch um, Murdoch campaigned against didn't lose. I think is the te- is would be the yeah. correct technical ex- explanation. Remember, Murdoch uh, switched behind Rudd in two thousand and seven. Murdoch backed in Hawke in nineteen eighty three. Um, Murdoch even supported Whitlam in seventy two, and now it's it's over. Like it's not they don't the old grip has weakened. Do I think that's forever? Um, no, I'm 47 years old, jaded and cynical. I think that monsters got a monster, and a monster will take a uh, defeat, but it won't necessarily die. I mean, I've seen enough horror movies to know the monster <laughs> is usually not entirely dead at the end. Um, and certainly, I think that the the Murdoch family will try to regain their influence and work out ways to do that. I think it's going to be really interesting in terms of how their media structures in Australia develop. I think it says a lot about the Australian people that you can have one family owning, what, 80% of our media or something completely ridiculous, but they can't actually, even with that level of influence, that they can't Tell, they can't tell people what to do anymore, yeah. which I think is really exciting. I think it's very difficult in Queensland because the media concentration around the Murdoch family in Queensland is positively – it's feudal, it's aristocratic. Yeah. It is totalitarian, I think, is one way of describing it. Um, it's amazing that they're still allowed to broadcast the ABC in Queensland, quite frankly, and I'm sure they'll come up with a way to stop doing that if um, if they can, uh, speaking of the Murdochs. Um but I think that the fact that that is weakening says a lot about the power of social media and the way that we consume media differently. Obviously, this podcast and the kind of projects that you and I do are part of that, and there are a lot of projects like that going on. Yeah. But I absolutely think that the Murdochs are not going to take this lying down, and you can see that that level of inf- the level of influence in the United States 
what has happened there is that obviously you have these massive populations moving towards the Democrats in America. Like the the Senate map in the United States does not in any way reflect how people yeah. actually vote there. Like millions of millions more people vote for Democrats than vote for Republicans. Yeah, yeah. You know, senators in California represent what, like forty thousand times or some ridiculous number, the number of people represented in Wisconsin. But I think that you know what I mean. Yeah. But uh, what Murdoch did in the United States was to concentrate the message on the base. The Wall Street Journal speaks to the bosses and Fox News and Tucker Carlson speak to the the voting base and the organising base of the Republican Party. And the message discipline of those avenues is so intense that every every consumer of Fox News has the talking points, has the attack lines, knows how to go out and talk to their neighbour in their community and hammer them with what the party wants them to say. And I think that that kind of niche targeting of activists is obviously what they're trying to do with Sky News here um, on polling places. You know, it was interesting yeah, to hear from friends, it. yeah, from friends who are handing hanging out at and handing out at polling places, hearing attack lines that were from Sky that were being repeated to them. You know, as if they were gospel and the rest of it, and that level of intensity that seems to be the pivot that Murdoch will probably resort to here, which is really disturbing because it's not. I mean, it's not good yeah, because it's. It's also less effective here because of universal enfranchisement. And and I think, you know, one of the things that, that that's come through, you know, on Monday, the the announcement from Q&A that uh, Alexander Downer is going to be on the show uh, this week was met with a huge backlash online because there is a concern about not just Murdoch's influence over his own media channels and his ability to kind of pump out talking points to activists through through those, but because we have a universal enfranchisement system, he does need a broader reach. And this insidious infiltration in management positions in the national broadcaster, uh, in the SBS, uh, people have people have questioned some of the management decisions. In you know former Fairfax uh, publications, in other the, the chair of Fairfax being Peter Costello, of course, former federal treasurer and Howard government cabinet minister. Yeah, that there is there is a sort of conservatism that has crept into so many parts of the Australian media that that really you know it's not just Murdoch anymore. It's actually about how. Australians decide to reform. Like, you know, there was a time when uh, the Murdoch press would argue for uh, free markets and, and and freedom of speech and the sort of Menzian liberalism. Well, now, of course, they're all for regulating any voice that isn't theirs. They're for breaking up the ABC. They're for uh, preventing... Uh, new entrance into the marketplace, like it's quite a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pro their own back pocket approach, isn't it? Oh, look, absolutely, and it always has been. I mean, let's remember 
that Rupert Murdoch's father passionately campaigned against the ABC yeah. when, when the Murdoch Empire was, you know, just a few newspapers. Um, also campaigned against uh, Sir John Monash, probably, you know, this country's greatest military hero, um, uh, in a really quite nakedly anti-Semitic way, let's let's be fair. Um, and the influence of the, uh, and, you know, the Murdoch family have always seen the ABC as antithetical to their commercial interests always. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that's a long-term war. Um, I mean, there has been absolutely an infiltration of the ABC uh, in terms of, you know, the kind of politics that have been brought to decision-making there on, on every level. Um, and you and I know ABC journalists who have spoken yeah. to us, quite frankly, about the kind of political issues they've had to very carefully and in some ways very cleverly negotiate in order for the the news and the truth to get through. And obviously, like the purview of a federal ICAC, I think absolutely should look at coordinated influence operations and that the way that they have been exerted on what is supposed to be the independent national broadcaster. Uh, I think that's a really important thing for ICAC to examine. Couldn't could not agree more. And I think the role of uh, independent, honest, transparent media, uh, you know, I don't pretend to have false balance, uh, but I will always be honest about my views and why I form them and where they come from uh, so that people can make those judgments. I think that's uh, important going forward. And look, you know, the ABC should be impartial. Uh, it shouldn't be determined by the minister because it is a national broadcaster. They should be genuinely striving for balance. They I mean, all ministers should be terrified of the ABC, whether they're <laughs> right. left, right or indifferent. That's yeah. the point. You yeah. know, and if you look at the great titans of Australian journalism, Caroline Jones very sadly passed away last week. You know, the, the, and Kerry O'Brien, um, Barry Cassidy, you know, these kind of journalists might like the, there's so many of them whose whose relentlessness was to the truth. Well, my, my like, Carlton, Van, can I just say to Mike Carlton, you know, was the was the person who asked Bob Hawke if he felt he had blood on his hands, which was probably the, the single most infuriated, I think, Bob Hawke ever was on national television. And, of course- Richard Carlton, I'm, not Mike Carlton. Sorry, Richard Carlton. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's an incredible thing. Uh so, look, we need to end on some good news. Uh, I think, to be fair, this show has been mostly good news. I think it's one of the first times we've had a, a week on Wednesday where the bulk of the news has been pretty positive in one way or another. The Labor government, baby. <laughs> Labor not even, government. Not even a week old and already it's all good news. But, Van, last week we did give a shout-out to people to say support your local public school uh, they are underfunded. Uh, we know that is on the agenda. Uh, buy your democracy sausages. And we've had some good news that yeah, people did. People flocked to democracy sausages they on Saturday. They did. They did. So we did a shout out to all uh, state schools that were uh, policy, uh, sorry, polling places, reminding our readership that, and sorry, listenership. Um, that these are places that rely on selling sausages in order to pay for basic equipment, yeah. which is 
just one of the ugliest legacies of nine years of Liberal government. Yeah. Anyway, after we talked about this, I was contacted by someone from the community at Abbotsford Public School in New South Wales who told me that and because they had they had heard us talking about this. Um, and they told me that their school raised thirty thousand dollars from sausage sales on election day. And that that money is going to be spent providing computer equipment to kids from disadvantaged families who can't afford it. Fantastic. That is fantastic news. I have one other piece of good news that I'm determined to very, share. Very, very quickly because we also have to acknowledge our cadre and extending the reach supporters. Uh, IKEA are selling solar panels in the United States. There you go. So you can get solar panels with your meatballs at the big box Swedish house of flat pack. Yes, by from about September. If you are in the United States, you will be able to buy the components to outfit home solar at IKEA and it's one of the number of um, of closed loop and pro environment retail policies that the you know social democracy Fantastic. in big box store form are pursuing and I'm like good on you IKEA we have expedite bookshelves we regret nothing now I want to just say before we launch into thanking our cadre supporters if you are a cadre supporter you should have received a link yesterday that's Tuesday the 24th of May with a special video message from Van uh, and a range of links uh, from material that we've produced over the course of the election and of course the election means that our advertising expenses did go up but we were able to keep growing our listenership throughout because of the support of our cadre our extending the reach our buck a week and our one-off supporters and we want to give a shout out to our cadre supporters right now. I'm going to do it. You ready? You ready, everybody? I know people live for this. Go. Our cadre are Kerry, at Jane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, Punch Trunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hanay Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Christina Cole, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou, and Bronwyn. And then we have our Extending the Reach supporters, and there are heaps of them, and I'm very excited. Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, Adgal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Eliana and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryant, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as at not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti at Didums, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Adrian Valente, and Didoms. Isn't that exciting? We have three other three hundred other supporters who make a buck a week donation. Uh, sorry, contribution, um, and that just—I mean—it means that we can afford advertising. We can pay for a bit of production. We can get the podcast in front of more people. We hear all the time about uh, people who are in various policy networks um, who listen to the week on Wednesday. Uh, people who are active in the union who share the show with delegates and other members, so everybody can be on the same. Page, know why we as a movement have the ideas 
that we have and what they mean and where they sit in the context of people's lives. We get really excited hearing about that. If you're throwing a week on Wednesday listening party with friends or comrades or other delegates or in your office, we're so into that. And you should let us know because we'll do a shout out. We love that kind of stuff, don't we, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. And remember, if you've enjoyed this episode or any episode of the week on Wednesday, like, comment, share. If you can make a comment on Apple Podcasts, that does help get the podcast in front of other people. If you can make a contribution, check out our Buy Me A Coffee page. It's www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. The links will be in all of our social media. Wherever you've got this podcast from, you will find that link. It's been a huge, huge week in Australian politics, a new government, a gang of five, and by this time next week, we'll have a full ministry and a whole new approach to this country. It's an amazing, amazing time to be alive. Join us on Sunday for the weekend wrap. And until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Labor government. Woo! Bye. Bye.